Chapter Two of Janet's Repentance from Scenes of Clerical Life by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter Two. The conversation just recorded is not, I am aware, remarkably refined or witty, but if it had been, it could hardly have taken place in Milby when Mr. Dempster flourished there and old Mr. Crewe, the curate, was yet alive. More than a quarter of a century has slipped by since then, and in the interval Milby has advanced at as rapid a pace as other market towns in Her Majesty's dominions. By this time it has a handsome railway station, where the drowsy London traveller may look out by the brilliant gaslight, and see perfectly sober papas and husbands alighting with their leather bags after transacting their day's business at the county town. There is a resident rector who appeals to the consciences of his hearers with all the immense advantages of a divine who keeps his own carriage. The church is enlarged by at least five hundred sittings, and the grammar school, conducted on reformed principles, has its upper forms crowded with the genteel youth of Milby. The gentlemen there fall into no other excess at dinner-parties than the perfectly well-bred and virtuous excess of stupidity and though the ladies are still said sometimes to take too much upon themselves they are never known to take too much in any other way the conversation is sometimes quite literary for there is a flourishing book-club and many of the younger ladies have carried their studies so far as to have forgotten a little german in short milby is now a refined moral and enlightened town no more resembling the Milby of former days than the huge, long-skirted, drab greatcoat that embarrassed the ankles of our grandfathers, resembled the light paletot in which we tread jauntily through the muddiest streets, or than the bottle-nosed Britons rejoicing over a tankard in the old sign of the two travellers at Milby, resembled the severe-looking gentleman in straps and high collars whom a modern artist has represented as sipping the imaginary port of that well-known commercial house but pray reader dismiss from your mind all the refined and fashionable ideas associated with this advanced state of things and transport your imagination to a time when milby had no gas-lights when the mail drove up dusty or bespattered to the door of the red lion when old Mr. Crewe, the curate, in a brown Brutus wig, delivered inaudible sermons on a Sunday and on a weekday imparted the education of a gentleman, that is to say, an arduous inacquaintance with Latin through the medium of the Eton grammar, to three pupils in the upper grammar school. If you had passed through Milby on the coach at that time, you would have had no idea what important people lived there and how very high a sense of rank was prevalent among them. It was a dingy-looking town, with a strong smell of tanning up one street, and a great shaking of hand-looms up another. And even in that focus of aristocracy, Friar's Gate, the houses would not have seemed very imposing to the hasty and superficial glance of a passenger you might still less have suspected that the figure in light fustian and large grey whiskers, leaning against the grocer's doorpost in High Street, was no less a person than Mr. Loam, one of the most aristocratic men in Milby, said to have been brought up a gentleman, and to have had the gay habits accordant with that station, 
keeping his harriers and other expensive animals. He was now quite an elderly Lothario, reduced to the most economical sins, the prominent form of his gaiety being this of lounging at Mr. Gruby's door, embarrassing the servant-maids who came for grocery, and talking scandal with the rare passers-by. Still, it was generally understood that Mr. Loam belonged to the highest circle of Milby society. His sons and daughters held up their heads very high indeed, and in spite of his condescending way of chatting and drinking with inferior people, he would himself have scorned any closer identification with them. It must be admitted that he was of some service to the town in this station at Mr. Gruby's door, for he and Mr. Lander's Newfoundland dog, who stretched himself and gaped on the opposite causeway, took something from the lifeless air that belonged to the high street on every day except Saturday. Certainly, in spite of three assemblies and a charity ball in the winter, the occasional advent of a ventriloquist, or a company of itinerant players, some of whom were very highly thought of in London, and the annual three days' fair in June, Milby might be considered dull by people of a hypochondriacal temperament, and perhaps this was one reason why many of the middle-aged inhabitants, male and female, often found it impossible to keep up their spirits without a very abundant supply of stimulants. It is true there were several substantial men who had a reputation for exceptional sobriety, so that Milby habits were really not as bad as possible, and no one is warranted in saying that old Mr. Crewe's flock could not have been worse without any clergyman at all. The well-dressed parishioners generally were very regular churchgoers, and to the younger ladies and gentlemen I am inclined to think that the Sunday morning service was the most exciting event of the week, for few places could present a more brilliant show of outdoor toilettes than might be seen issuing from Milby Church at one o'clock. There were the four tall Miss Pittmans, old lawyer Pittman's daughters, with cannon curls surmounted by large hats and long drooping ostrich feathers of parrot green. There was Miss Phipps, with a crimson bonnet, very much tilted up behind, and a cockade of stiff feathers on the summit. There was Miss Landor, the belle of Milby, clad regally in purple and ermine, with a plume of feathers neither drooping nor erect, but maintaining a discreet medium. There were the three Miss Tomlinsons, who imitated Miss Landor, and also wore ermine and feathers, but their beauty was considered of a coarse order, and their square forms were quite unsuited to the round tippet which fell with such remarkable grace on Miss Landor's sloping shoulders. Looking at this plumed procession of ladies, you would have formed rather a high idea of Milby wealth, yet there was only one close carriage in the place, and that was old Mr. Landor's, the banker, who I think never drove more than one horse. These sumptuously attired ladies flashed past the vulgar eye in one-horse chaises, by no means of a superior build. The young gentlemen, too, were not without their little Sunday displays of costume of a limited masculine kind. Mr. Eustace Lander, being nearly of age, had recently acquired a diamond ring, together with the habit of rubbing his hand through his hair. 
he was tall and dark and thus had an advantage which mr alfred phipps who like his sister was blond and stumpy found it difficult to overtake even by the severest attention to shirt-studs and the particular shade of brown that was best relieved by gilt buttons the respect for the sabbath manifested in this attention to costume was unhappily counterbalanced by considerable levity of behaviour during the prayers and sermon for the young ladies and gentlemen of milby were of a very satirical turn miss lander especially being considered remarkably clever and a terrible quiz and the large congregation necessarily containing many persons inferior in dress and demeanour to the distinguished aristocratic minority divine service offered irresistible temptations to joking through the medium of telegraphic communications from the galleries to the aisles and back again i remember blushing very much and thinking miss landor was laughing at me because i was appearing in coat-tails for the first time when i saw her look down slyly towards where i sat and then turn with a titter to handsome mr bob loam who had such beautiful whiskers meeting under his chin but perhaps she was not thinking of me after all for our pew was near the pulpit and there was almost always something funny about old mr crewe his brown wig was hardly ever put on quite right and he had a way of raising his voice for three or four words and lowering it again to a mumble so that we could scarcely make out a word he said though as my mother observed that was of no consequence in the prayers since every one had a prayer-book and as for the sermon she continued with some causticity we all of us heard more of it than we could remember when we got home this youthful generation was not particularly literary the young ladies who frizzed their hair and gathered it all into large barricades in front of their heads leaving their occipital region exposed without ornament as if that being a back view was of no consequence dreamed as little that their daughters would read a selection of german poetry and be able to express an admiration for schiller as that they would turn all their hair the other way that instead of threatening us with barricades in front they would be most killing in retreat and like the parthian wound us as they fly those charming well-frizzed ladies spoke french indeed with considerable facility unshackled by any timid regard to idiom and were in the habit of conducting conversations in that language in the presence of their less instructed elders for according to the standard of those backward days their education had been very lavish such young ladies as miss lander miss phipps and the miss pitmans having been finished at distant and expensive schools old lawyer pitman had once been a very important person indeed having in his earlier days managed the affairs of several gentlemen in those parts who had subsequently been obliged to sell everything and leave the country in which crisis mr pitman accommodatingly stepped in as a purchaser of their estates taking on himself the risk and trouble of a more leisurely sale which however happened to turn out very much to his advantage such opportunities occur quite unexpectedly in the way of business but i think mr pitman must have been unlucky in his later speculations for now in his old age he had not the reputation of being very rich 
and though he rode slowly to his office in milby every morning on an old white hackney he had to resign the chief profits as well as the active business of the firm to his younger partner dempster no one in milby considered old pitman a virtuous man and the elder townspeople were not at all backward in narrating the least advantageous portions of his biography in a very round unvarnished manner yet i could never observe that they trusted him any the less or liked him any the worse indeed pitman and dempster were the popular lawyers of milby and its neighbourhood and mr benjamin landor whom no one had anything particular to say against had a very meagre business in comparison hardly a landholder hardly a farmer hardly a parish within ten miles of milby whose affairs were not under the legal guardianship of pitman and dempster and i think the clients were proud of their lawyer's unscrupulousness as the patrons of the fancy are proud of their champion's condition it was not to be sure the thing for ordinary life but it was the thing to be bet on in a lawyer dempster's talent in bringing through a client was a very common topic of conversation with the farmers over an incidental glass of grog at the red lion he's a long-headed fellow dempster why it shows yer what a headpiece dempster has as he can drink a bottle o brandy at a sittin and yit see further through a stone wall when he's done than other folks'll see through a glass winder even mr jerome chief member of the congregation at salem chapel an elderly man of very strict life was one of dempster's clients and had quite an exceptional indulgence for his attorney's foibles perhaps attributing them to the inevitable incompatibility of law and gospel the standard of morality at milby you perceive was not inconveniently high in those good old times and an ingenuous vice or two was what every man expected of his neighbour old mr crewe the curate for example was allowed to enjoy his avarice in comfort without fear of sarcastic parish demagogues and his flock liked him all the better for having scraped together a large fortune out of his school and curacy and the proceeds of the three thousand pounds he had with his little deaf wife it was clear he must be a learned man for he had once had a large private school in connection with the grammar school and had even numbered a young nobleman or two among his pupils the fact that he read nothing at all now and that his mind seemed absorbed in the commonest matters was doubtless due to his having exhausted the resources of erudition earlier in life it is true he was not spoken of in terms of high respect and old crewe's stingy housekeeping was a frequent subject of jesting but this was a good old-fashioned characteristic in a parson who had been part of milby life for half a century it was like the dents and disfigurements in an old family tankard which no one would like to part with for a smart new piece of plate fresh from birmingham the parishioners saw no reason at all why it should be desirable to venerate the parson or any one else they were much more comfortable to look down a little on their fellow-creatures even the dissent in milby was then of a lax and indifferent kind the doctrine of adult baptism struggling under a heavy load of debt had let off half its chapel area as a ribbon-shop and methodism was only to be detected as you detect curious larvae by diligent search in dirty corners 
the independents were the only dissenters of whose existence milby gentility was at all conscious and it had a vague idea that the salient points of their creed were prayer without book red brick and hypocrisy the independent chapel known as salem stood red and conspicuous in a broad street more than one pew-holder kept a brass-bound gig and mr jerome a retired corn factor and the most eminent member of the congregation was one of the richest men in the parish but in spite of this apparent prosperity together with the usual amount of extemporaneous preaching mitigated by furtive notes salem belied its name and was not always the abode of peace for some reason or other it was unfortunate in the choice of its ministers the rev mr horner elected with brilliant hopes was discovered to be given to tippling and quarrelling with his wife the rev mr rose's doctrine was a little too high verging on antinomianism the rev mr stickney's gift as a preacher was found to be less striking on a more extended acquaintance and the rev mr smith a distinguished minister much sought after in the iron districts with a talent for poetry became objectionable from an inclination to exchange verses with the young ladies of his congregation it was reasonably argued that such verses as mr smith's must take a long time for their composition and the habit alluded to might entrench seriously on his pastoral duties these reverend gentlemen one and all gave it as their opinion that the salem church members were among the least enlightened of the lord's people and that milby was a low place where they would have found it a severe lot to have their lines fall for any long period though to see the smart and crowded congregation assembled on occasion of the annual charity sermon any one might have supposed that the minister of salem had rather a brilliant position in the ranks of dissent several church families used to attend on that occasion for milby in those uninstructed days had not yet heard that the schismatic ministers of salem were obviously typified by korah dathan and abraham and many church people there were of opinion that dissent might be a weakness but after all had no great harm in it these lax episcopalians were i believe chiefly tradespeople who held that inasmuch as congregationalism consumed candles it ought to be supported and accordingly made a point of presenting themselves at salem for the afternoon charity sermon with the expectation of being asked to hold a plate mr pilgrim too was always there with his half-sovereign for as there was no dissenting doctor in milby mr pilgrim looked with great tolerance on all shades of religious opinion that did not include a belief in cures by miracle on this point he had the concurrence of mr pratt the only other medical man of the same standing in milby otherwise it was remarkable how strongly these two clever men were contrasted pratt was middle-sized insinuating and silvery-voiced pilgrim was tall heavy rough-mannered and spluttering both were considered to have great powers of conversation but pratt's anecdotes were of the fine old crusted quality to be procured only of joe miller pilgrim's had the full fruity flavour of the most recent scandal pratt elegantly referred all diseases to debility and with a proper contempt for symptomatic treatment went to the root of the matter with port wine and bark 
Pilgrim was persuaded that the evil principle in the human system was plethora, and he made war against it with cupping, blistering, and cathartics. They had both been long established in Milby, and as each had a sufficient practice, there was no very malignant rivalry between them. On the contrary, they had that sort of friendly contempt for each other, which is always conducive to good understanding between professional men. And when any new surgeon attempted in an ill-advised hour to settle himself in the town, it was strikingly demonstrated how slight and trivial are theoretic differences compared with the broad basis of common human feeling. There was the most perfect unanimity between Pratt and Pilgrim in the determination to drive away the obnoxious and too probably unqualified intruder as soon as possible. Whether the first wonderful cure he effected was on a patient of Pratt's or of Pilgrim's, one was as ready as the other to pull the interloper by the nose, and both alike directed their remarkable powers of conversation towards making the town too hot for him. But by their respective patients these two distinguished men were pitted against each other with great virulence. Mrs. Loam could not conceal her amazement that Mrs. Phipps should trust her life in the hands of Pratt, who let her feed herself up to that degree it was really shocking to hear how short her breath was. And Mrs. Phipps had no patience with Mrs. Loam, living as she did on tea and broth and looking as yellow as any crow-flower, and yet letting Pilgrim bleed and blister her and give her lowering medicine till her clothes hung on her like a scarecrow's. On the whole, perhaps, Mr. Pilgrim's reputation was at the higher pitch, and when any lady under Mr. Pratt's care was doing ill, she was half disposed to think that a little more active treatment might suit her better. But without very definite provocation, no one would take so serious a step as to part with the family doctor, for in those remote days there were few varieties of human hatred more formidable than the medical. The doctor's estimate, even of a confiding patient, was apt to rise and fall with the entries in the day-book, and I have known Mr. Pilgrim discover the most unexpected virtues in a patient seized with a promising illness. At such times you might have been glad to perceive that there were some of Mr. Pilgrim's fellow-creatures of whom he entertained a high opinion, and that he was liable to the amiable weakness of a too admiring estimate. A good inflammation fired his enthusiasm, and a lingering dropsy dissolved him into charity. Doubtless this crescendo of benevolence was partly due to feelings not at all represented by the entries in the day-book for in mr pilgrim's heart too there was a latent store of tenderness and pity which flowed forth at the sight of suffering gradually however as his patients became convalescent his view of their characters became more dispassionate when they could relish mutton-chops he began to admit that they had foibles and by the time they had swallowed their last dose of tonic he was alive to their most inexcusable faults after this the thermometer of his regard rested at the moderate point of friendly backbiting which sufficed to make him agreeable in his morning visits to the amiable and worthy patients who were yet far from convalescent pratt's patients were profoundly uninteresting to pilgrim their very diseases were despicable 
and he would hardly have thought their bodies worth dissecting but of all pratt's patients mr jerome was the one on whom mr pilgrim heaped the most unmitigated contempt in spite of the surgeon's wise tolerance dissent became odious to him in the person of mr jerome perhaps it was because that old gentleman being rich and having very large yearly bills for medical attendance on himself and his wife nevertheless employed pratt neglected all the advantages of active treatment and paid away his money without getting his system lowered on any other ground it is hard to explain a feeling of hostility to mr jerome who was an excellent old gentleman expressing a great deal of good-will towards his neighbours not only in imperfect english but in loans of money to the ostensibly rich and in sacks of potatoes to the obviously poor assuredly milby had that salt of goodness which keeps the world together in greater abundance than was visible on the surface innocent babes were born there sweetening their parents hearts with simple joys men and women withering in disappointed worldliness or bloated with sensual ease had better moments in which they pressed the hand of suffering with sympathy and were moved to deeds of neighborly kindness in church and in chapel there were honest-hearted worshippers who strove to keep a conscience void of offence and even up the dimmest alleys you might have found here and there a wesleyan to whom methodism was the vehicle of peace on earth and good-will to men to a superficial glance milby was nothing but dreary prose a dingy town surrounded by flat fields lopped elms and sprawling manufacturing villages which crept on and on with their weaving shops till they threatened to graft themselves on the town but the sweet spring came to milby notwithstanding the elm tops were red with buds the churchyard was starred with daisies the lark showered his love music on the flat fields the rainbows hung over the dingy town clothing the very roofs and chimneys in a strange transfiguring beauty and so it was with the human life there which at first seemed a dismal mixture of griping worldliness vanity ostrich feathers and the fumes of brandy looking closer you found some purity gentleness and unselfishness as you might have observed a scented geranium giving forth its wholesome odours amidst blasphemy and gin in a noisy pothouse little deaf mrs crewe would often carry half her own spare dinner to the sick and hungry miss phipps with her cockade of red feathers had a filial heart and lighted her father's pipe with a pleasant smile and there were grey-haired men in drab gaiters not at all noticeable as you passed them in the street whose integrity had been the basis of their rich neighbour's wealth such as the place was the people there were entirely contented with it they fancied life must be but a dull affair for that large portion of mankind who were necessarily shut out from an acquaintance with milby families and that it must be an advantage to london and liverpool that milby gentlemen occasionally visited those places on business but the inhabitants became more intensely conscious of the value they set upon all their advantages when innovation made its appearance in the person of the reverend mr tryan the new curate at the chapel of ease on paddiford common 
It was soon notorious in Milby that Mr. Tryan held peculiar opinions, that he preached extempore, that he was founding a religious lending library in his remote corner of the parish, that he expounded the scriptures in cottages, and that his preaching was attracting the dissenters and filling the very aisles of his church. The rumour sprang up that evangelicalism had invaded Milby Parish, a moraine or blight all the more terrible because its nature was but dimly conjectured. Perhaps Milby was one of the last spots to be reached by the wave of a new movement, and it was only now, when the tide was just on the turn, that the limpets there got a sprinkling. Mr. Tryan was the first evangelical clergyman who had risen above the Milby horizon. Hitherto that obnoxious adjective had been unknown to the townspeople of any gentility, and there were even many dissenters who considered evangelical simply a sort of baptismal name to the magazine which circulated among the congregation of Salem Chapel. But now, at length, the disease had been imported, when the parishioners were expecting it as little as the innocent red Indians expected smallpox. As long as Mr. Tryan's hearers were confined to Paddyford Common, which, by the by, was hardly recognizable as a common at all, but was a dismal district where you heard the rattle of the hand-loom and breathed the smoke of coal-pits, the canting parson could be treated as a joke. Not so when a number of single ladies in the town appeared to be infected, and even one or two men of substantial property, with old Mr. Lander, the banker, at their head, seemed to be giving in to the new movement, when Mr. Tryan was known to be well received in several good houses, where he was in the habit of finishing the evening with exhortation and prayer. Evangelicalism was no longer a nuisance existing merely in by-corners which any well-clad person could avoid. It was invading the very drawing-rooms, mingling itself with the comfortable fumes of port wine and brandy, threatening to deaden with its murky breath all the splendour of the ostrich feathers, and to stifle Milby ingenuousness, not pretending to be better than its neighbours, with a cloud of cant and lugubrious hypocrisy. The alarm reached its climax when it was reported that Mr. Tryan was endeavouring to obtain authority from Mr. Prendergast, the non-resident rector, to establish a Sunday evening lecture in the parish church on the ground that old Mr. Crewe did not preach the gospel. It now first appeared how surprisingly high a value Milby in general set on the ministrations of Mr. Crewe, how convinced it was that Mr. Crewe was the model of a parish priest, and his sermons the soundest and most edifying that had ever remained unheard by a church-going population. All allusions to his brown wig were suppressed, and by a rhetorical figure his name was associated with venerable grey hairs. The attempted intrusion of Mr. Tryan was an insult to a man deep in years and learning. Moreover, it was an insolent effort to thrust himself forward in a parish where he was clearly distasteful to the superior portion of its inhabitants. The town was divided into two zealous parties, the Tryanites and anti-Tryanites, and by the exertions of the eloquent Dempster, the anti-Tryanite virulence was soon developed into an organized opposition. 
a protest against the meditated evening lecture was framed by that orthodox attorney and after being numerously signed was to be carried to mr prendergast by three delegates representing the intellect morality and wealth of milby the intellect you perceive was to be personified in mr dempster the morality in mr budd and the wealth in mr tomlinson and the distinguished triad was to set out on its great mission as we have seen on the third day from that warm saturday evening when the conversation recorded in the previous chapter took place in the bar of the red lion End of chapter two of janet's repentance